And in walks Casey's friend and landlord, Jason, who's kind of a doofus (laughs) character. And just like, is there for the whole fight. Everyone and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for another great conversation about another great script. It's exciting today because we're talking about uh, like this kind of wild script, the script that is a lot of the experience of the show. My sense is that it's not in the text of the play, which is always an interesting one to discuss. Um, it's also uh, very popular right now, and it also generates a lot of controversy right now from lots of different corners. It's kind of a hot-button script to talk about, so that's always uh, an interesting thing to cover on the podcast. It's true, it's true. Yeah, I know we are excited today to be talking about The Legend of Georgia McBride by Matthew Lopez. Yeah, what what a just a delightful script. I I think I I think I do agree a lot of it. Uh, you, uh in reading the script, you have to imagine a good chunk of the play. Fortunately, there's a well-written stage direction, so even the reading of the script, you, if you have a bit of imagination, which if you're reading scripts, you probably have an imagination. Um uh you you can be availed of some of that imagery in your mind, but but it is a show that that uh it provides a delightful spectacle for for people um and uh and uh, definitely will 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 talk towards that a little bit i imagine as as we continue in our conversation but i'm excited to talk about the show in general it has a lot of great characters a lot of great stories woven into it so it's going to be a fun show yeah, no, I definitely think that's true. But before we get to that part of the conversation, we have some housekeeping, some exciting teases, all that kind of stuff to do. The first of them is to begin the process of saying that thing that we say every season, which is the themed month is on its way. If you oh are boy. following along in the life of no script as it's being published here, then it is early October for you. And this season, November, is going to be our themed month. So, we are just a couple of short weeks away from doing this. For those that are new to the podcast, this is a month of the season that we dedicate every season to discussing scripts that have something in common. It's our general mission and our general sort of plan to do scripts that have nothing in common or very little in common, to do a lot of variety, in other words, episode to episode, week to week, and across the course of the season to bring a lot of different voices and stories and ways of telling stories to the podcast. But for four episodes every season, our themed month, we do scripts that share some element in order to have a different kind of discussion, a discussion across genre sometimes. We've done uh, a discussion about how murder is presented in Murder Month, and we've done a discussion about Arthur Miller plays, and we've done a discussion about Greek plays, and we've done all kinds of 
of different things across the now. This will be the 11th themed month in the life of no script we're not yet ready to reveal what that theme is going to be if you're a patron of the show you already know but for the rest of our audience we will reveal that in the coming weeks but know that in november we will be embarking on another themed month journey Yes, we are still workshopping what uh, kind of attempts at alliterative titles for that themed month we will likely try. We've had had Magic Month and Murder Month and Miller Month, and then we we started giving up on the alliterative titles after a couple of those. But we're bringing it back. We're bringing it back. We're bringing it back. (laughs) so get excited for that that's just a few short weeks away uh we'll have more on that as we get closer and closer to that that themed month but excited to get to share it with you as it is one of the hallmarks of a no script season getting to engage these scripts that are all of uh some sort of a connection to each other and allow the conversation to have um just the wonderings around both the resonances and also probably the relief and the juxtaposition of these plays in conversation with each other Looking forward to that, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today as well. One last thing before we dive into it, and that is to ask you if you are not already a patron of the show to consider becoming one. You can do that on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. All one word, no hyphens, no underscores, patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. That's where you can become a supporter of the show. The folks on Patreon agree, sign up through the Patreon system to give a small amount of money every month. The lowest tier is just a dollar a month, and that money goes directly to the running of this show. It makes it possible to do. Jackson and I love to do this show. It's a great part of our life, but it is not a free part of our life. And the reality is that we couldn't have No Script the Podcast in the form that it exists without the folks that support us over on Patreon. So huge thank you if that's you. Thank you. This episode, all the other episodes come directly out of your support. It can't happen without you. If that's not you yet, just think about it. Maybe check out the Patreon page. Get a little look-see. Again, the lower tier dollar a month is very, very helpful. There's higher tiers from up there, of course, if you have more to give, but even that dollar a month level is just hugely helpful. You get special benefits like one that we just mentioned is knowing ahead of time some of those things that we tease along the season. Our patrons know what the themed month is and what the scripts are planning to be, so check all that out over on the Patreon page. Again, patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast, and we will see you over there. And now, back to the script. Okay, I am going to just jump into a little bit of context for us for this play. Matthew Lopez is a new playwright to the podcast, so we're going to give you just a little bit of context on Matthew Lopez and then a little bit of context on the play just to kind of set you in time and place for our conversation. These, are, of course, are glancing contexts. Um, uh, there's plenty out there if you want more information on both uh, Lopez and the show, but we'll just give you a little bit of information to start with. Um, Matthew Lopez uh, has a number of plays that you may have run into before. His kind of debut play was uh, The Whipping Man, um, but certainly this play, The Legend of Georgia McBride, has been a wild success. (laughs) Um, Certainly a a well-produced success. Um, Additionally, his play The Inheritance um, is is a pretty well-known play right now. Um, It premiered at London's Young Vic in 2018, um, and it won a bunch bunch of awards. It was very well-lauded. It came over to Broadway, so so definitely you may have heard of The Inheritance. Um, 
you've also uh, perhaps heard, <laughs> uh, if you if you pay attention to the uh, to the Tonys uh, of Some Like It Hot uh, this year, twenty twenty three, Some Like It Hot received a, a bevy of of award nominations for the Tony Awards, and uh, Lopez um, was the co co writer of the book and musical for that adaption. So uh, uh, a well lauded playwright, he's had a lot of success um, uh, with his work uh, both both on Broadway, West End, off Broadway, um, uh, across stages and uh, his his work continues to be produced regionally. Um, uh, as I move into the kind of just context of Legend of Georgia McBride, I don't know if I have uh, as extensive a list of regional houses that have done a play in recent memory <laughs> as I do for this play, as I looked at the kind of ongoing list of productions of the Legend of Georgia McBride. Um, this particular play premiered at the Denver Center of the Performing Arts in January 2014. Um, and then it was off-Broadway at the MCC Theater, and that's kind of amongst the first of the videos of interviews that I found on this play. That's a, that's kind of where it kind of gets its its shining moment off-Broadway. Um, that, that production uh, ran in September of 2015, and it was the one that garnered uh, a lot of its kind of nominations for awards. It was nominated for the Lucio Lordel Awards, um, it, uh, nominated for Drama Desk Awards in 2016, it won Outstanding Costume of the Drama Desk Awards, it was also nominated for a number of Outer Critics Circle Awards. And then it just it just kind of enters into the echelon of the touring regional houses. Uh, a lot of productions out in California, uh, Marin Theater Company uh, at S San Diego, at the Signet Theater Company, the Hippodrome State Theater in Florida, um, uh, has uh, productions in, in Dallas, Texas, in Honolulu, um, at the Guthrie Theater, yay, Minnesota, um, and uh, continues uh, on my list goes all the way up to 2022, uh, where, it, where I have another listing of it. I'm sure there are many that are not on my list as this show continues to be produced. Um, it's a great little five-hander, not little, um, but like a small cast five-hander um, with some great characters in it. And I'm excited to get to jump into the conversation around the play itself. Yeah, there there are certainly five characters listed. I will say that it's a little unclear to me yeah. um, if there should be like a whole group of other people involved in the show. Um, there's a bunch of other like performers reference that'll make more sense if you don't know anything about the show in just a minute but th that's unclear to me whether there should be other performers that are involved in the production of the show and and participate in the in the numbers that occur throughout in one way or another but yeah five called for actors one of whom doubles throughout the show i'm really interested in that idea um, and why that is part of the show other than just expediency so, The Legend of George McBride, just a general plot synopsis for you. Of course, this is not a substitute for reading the play. We're not going to go into any kind of real detail in this. Just a general overview so we have a starting place together. This play is largely about a gentleman named Casey. Casey is in his 20s and white. He lives in Florida, uh, in one of the tourist towns there, with his wife, uh, Joe who is an African-American woman in her 20s as well. And Casey is, at the top of the show, an Elvis impersonator is his job. And he is a darn good one. He's a, he, the, the stage directions are clear and the things the other characters say about his his 
performance is quite clear that he's about as good as an Elvis impersonator gets. And that is the way he is trying to build his career as a performer and trying to support financially um, his family or his soon-to-be family, which we'll talk about in just a moment, is through uh, this Elvis impersonation performance. The problem is that he's doing it at a bar called Cleo's where no one ever shows up. And the uh, the sort of the insinuation is that it may be because the Elvis impersonating act is boring or something. There's a reason why people aren't showing up to the bar Cleo's where he's supposed to be performing. The manager of the bar there is a gentleman named Eddie, who is uh, kind of an up and down business manager type person throughout the play, sometimes uh, is uh, forceful and quite rude, um, and then towards the end of the play becomes kind of a uh, off of the success of Cleo's later on a much more engaging, fun boss. It seems I don't know. Well, uh, Eddie's got an interesting path to follow. Um, so Eddie runs Cleo's. So Casey goes home after his, one of his Elvis impersonation performances that kind of makes up the top of the show. Throughout this play, there's going to be performances of the thing that the characters perform as a kind of centerpiece of the play. Um, right now, it's Elvis impersonation. It's about to not be Elvis impersonation. Um, but there, so after this Elvis impersonation that begins the show, uh, Casey goes home in his regular old outfit to their apartment, um, and his wife Joe is quite upset with him because he overdrew their bank account. He does not pay good enough attention to their money, and now they're late on their rent again. And so their landlords, who are also their dear friends, apparently in kind of a duplex situation, uh, are potentially going to kick them out because they're late on their rent, and and Casey just doesn't pay enough attention to the financials overall and in fact he's not making any money doing this Elvis impersonation gig it's more of a passion thing that he's hoping becomes a career but right now isn't making any money and this begins their stress and their fighting and then at the very end of this scene Joe comes out of their bedroom and says on top of all that I've just discovered that I'm pregnant and oh no things are about to change how are we going to pay for this baby um, and Casey says, I'm, you know, we're going to, we're going to get this figured out. I'm going to continue to work hard. Don't worry about it. His, uh, sort of method for handling stress starts to become very clear to largely ignore it. Uh, and, uh, he successfully convinces Joe of that. And then we get back to the uh, dressing room of the bar, which is, uh, quite terrible. And in comes a couple of drag queens, and this is going to become a large part of the rest of the play. The drag queens that arrive are Tracy Mills, Miss Tracy Mills. Uh, this is uh, one of the older characters of the play. Most of these characters are in their 20s, but Miss Tracy Mills is in her 40s or 50s, and uh, she brings with her a performing companion, Rexy, who is a drag queen in her 20s, uh, described as like a less uh, a suave uh, drag queen, I guess. And so these these folks arrive uh, after Casey is getting set up to perform his Elvis act, and uh, they go, ah, hey, my cousin Eddie, Tracy says, my cousin Eddie runs this bar, and he basically told me that he's going to fire the dude that they have doing the Elvis impersonation, and they're going to have, he's going to have us be the performers here instead. Of course, Casey, by bumbling happenstance, discovers, what do you mean I'm going to be fired? Nobody told me about this. And Eddie comes in and says, yeah, sorry, man, you're not, you know, you're a great Elvis impersonator but nobody's coming so i'm going to try something else you can still bartend though and so casey continues on as a bartender at this place um and the roxy and miss tracy mills begin their performances 
Casey goes home. He meets with Jason, who's his friend. This is the doubled character. Jason is played by the same actor who plays Roxy. Um, but I don't. We're not intended to believe at all that Jason is is Roxy in any way. It's just played by the same actor. So uh, Casey's at home, and Jason basically says, sorry, man, we're going to have to kick you out if you can't start paying rent. And Casey says, ah, gosh, I don't really know what to do. He and Joe have this kind of, boy, our life is about to be really stressful. Are we going to be kicked out of our house? What are we going to do? Casey gives her a foot rub, and then he sings her, and this will become crucial for later, their song. It seems to be a song that he wrote, um, and it's something that he sings wonderfully and beautifully and intimately for her, um, and that that's where that scene ends. We're back at the bar now, and Roxy is so drunk, Rexy rather, I've been saying Roxy, it's actually Rexy. Rexy is so drunk that she cannot continue to perform. In fact, she collapses in the dressing room and uh, Tracy Mills and Eddie oh my gosh what are we going to do how can we get out of this and in a great getting your character into trouble by accident example Casey says well I'll perform and Eddie and Tracy Mills are, are, are you sure are you sure? And Casey says, yeah, I'm a great performer. Casey goes to get his Elvis outfit, which is what he was thinking he was volunteering for, while Eddie goes, here's a dress. Why don't you be a drag queen? Why don't you do a drag performance? Um, and through lots of different tactics, Tracy and Eddie together managed to get Casey into drag and into performance. Um, and over the course of the next several, what, weeks, months, year, Casey learns that he's pretty darn good at drag performance. He starts out bad and ends up being quite good out of it and develops his own drag persona, Georgia McBride, who begins to sort of take over. He, he, Georgia McBride and Tracy Mills become a hit in this tourist area of Florida. They revive the bar. The bar starts to be a huge success, huge crowds. They upgrade their performances. And all throughout this sort of middle section of the play the quality of drag performance continues to go up and up and up and the actual performances by these artists are part of the show this is not just uh, the drag performances aren't just something that's happening off stage and we hear about they are part of the play and uh, they're just called for in stage directions. And Matthew Lopez does a really interesting job describing sort of the quality that they have and how we see Casey grow into this persona and into this performance. Throughout this middle section of the play, of course, he's also lying to his wife about it. He says, I'm making a ton of money bartending. That's where all this money is coming from because the Eddie brought in a, a metal band and they're being so successful and so everybody's throwing tips at me. He starts to make quite a bit of money doing this, um, but it continues to be a lie. And then, of course, as you can only expect, one night... Joe shows up at the bar to uh, to check on Eddie and or to Casey rather and discovers that he is performing in drag uh, and that he has been lying to her and actually I shouldn't have been guessing at the timeline because it tells us for about six months um, he has been lying to her about this and this be he he she runs out he follows her out when he really should be on stage performing as Georgia McBride they have a big fight in their apartment. For some reason, Jason's there. I'm interested in that, too, why Jason is yeah. in that scene. <laughs> but Joe and Casey have a big fight in their apartment about how he's been hiding things. He tries to make it up to her, but she's so upset. She says, are you gay? Have you been cheating on me? What else are you lying about? No, of course I haven't. How can I believe you? And she tosses him out. 
Um, and so he goes to visit Tracy Mills where she's staying, and Tracy Mills is now not in uh, her drag outfit and is now just a fellow named Bobby. Um, and Bobby basically says, you know, you you messed this up, dude. Uh, the Tracy Mills character throughout the play is really willing to call Casey on his BS. It's one of the delightful parts of the play. Um, and basically, Tracy Mills says, you got to figure out who you are and what you want and do that. And uh, don't you're, you're, you're screwing this up because you're trying to hold too many things together and you're not doing a very good job at any of them. So figure out what you want. I'm going to bring back my old performing partner, Rexy, uh, so that the show can continue to go on. You'll either join us or you won't, but the show's going on without you. Uh, I'm not going to suffer no fool here. And so then we go back to the bar and Rexy is getting ready to perform again and Casey comes in. And what follows is, I I think, a really, to me, moving... it's not an apologetics, but it's an articulation of the value that drag has to the drag community. Rexy basically says to Casey, you can't do this if you're not going to be serious about it, if you're going to be ashamed of it. That's not what this is for. It's not just like playing a part in a play. The the line that comes out of that that's so powerful to me, Rexy says, is drag is protest. When I was a young gay man in Houston and I was getting beaten nearly to death, for being who I am, drag is part of what gave me the confidence to be what I am, and that's what it means. So don't take this anything less than 100% seriously. And Casey decides to take it seriously. He comes out as Georgia McBride and in a a really stirring moment of the play goes up on stage and instead of lip syncing to different pop music, which is what the drag performances have been largely thus far, uh... Georgia McBride sings this beautiful song that Casey wrote for his wife, Joe. Uh, really sings it, not lip syncs it, plays the guitar. It's lovely. It's very different, I can imagine, than some of the rest of the drag performances. And uh, by a little bit of Deus Machina, Joe happened to be there in the audience watching this. She comes backstage and they agree that this is what makes Casey happy and it's a path forward for their family. And so she is going to support him through this no matter what. He apologizes and and yada yada. Um, And so then we head into the denouement and it's sometime later. The babies are born. There's twins, apparently, and they've named them some silly things like Elvis. And uh, (laughs) they've just sort of we live in this life that they've created this bar. It's a very successful uh, performance venue now. And it has also become a training ground for young drag artists that Tracy Mills sort of puts through her school of drag performance. Eddie has become sort of a sweet slick business owner who wants to take care of his whole little clan and family here um and joe and casey decide that they're going to buy a house and uh you know start the kind of permanent stable part of their life together uh then the show ends with one rousing big performance by the full cast it says and again i'm not sure maybe that includes other performers that have been involved so long and very notably a confetti cannon is called for specifically (laughs) in this big time showy ending to the play and that is the legend of georgia mcbride 
Yeah, yeah. So, so I wonder. I, I, I think that this often we get to the end of these conversations like, and also there's all this stuff going on. Spectacle. Um, I'm gonna start with spectacle this time, just so that we're sure to touch on it. Um, be, uh, and coming out of the confetti cannon last scene, um, uh, is probably a good way to jump into it. There, this play is just full of these amazing numbers. The uh, and but also the way that it governs time passing. A lot of time passes in this play. Six months, as 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 Jacob said, and and. Also also, quite a bit of learning for Casey about how to do drag well happens in this play, and it happens through each individual show. And each individual show has an each individual costume, which is, you know, this this play won an award for costuming. It's 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 it, all of these kind of fast changes happen, and it's a technical um, uh, uh, masterpiece, sort of, to kind of pull off these quick changes to uh, kind of show time passing well, and also to show the the development of Casey and and really Casey, uh, Miss Tracy Mills, and Eddie all go through this journey of oh we're actually kind of good at this and 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 this place can uh, adapt and become a place that that uh, that uh, Tr Tracy Mills can have a venue that that is supportive of her or supporting her and and enabling her show and Eddie Eddie can have a successful business um so so all this stuff is kind of happening in the uh, extravagant um, spectacle of these uh, numbers music numbers and shows that happen over the course of six months. Yeah, I, I, it's as you mentioned in your context. This this play is really, really popular, um, especially over the past three years or so. It's it feels like it's everywhere. I mean, I I have for different parts of my life looked around for different what different theaters are doing across the country, and the legend of Georgia McBride keeps coming up. I would not be shocked if it were in that group of plays that's like the top you know, 15, 20 most produced plays in America. It's it's very popular right now. There's a decent chance there's a production of it somewhere near you or has been in the near past. And that's interesting to me, not because of what the show is or is about, but because of, I, th I think this is a hard show to produce. Like, there, there are <laughs> many requirements technically in order to tell the story, this a lot of the storytelling relies on spectacle. It's not just an added bonus. It's part of the play. I mean, first of all, to cast Casey, this person who is an electric performer, both as an Elvis impersonator and a drag performer, and that his innate electricity as a performer is part of why he's successful. I just have to imagine that that's a difficult role to cast that on its own. And then as you describe the number of costume changes, drag performances, quick changes, the way that they sort of move in a montage through time, the upgrades in technology and in quality of costume and performance and and, and all of these different things that happen over the course of play, you need the technical support and execution to tell the story because that's the way that Matthew Lopez intends the story to be told. I don't know of a way you could make this play in the way Manti Lopez has imagined it, where the development of Casey as a performer happens in the middle of this drag of all of these drag performances one after another. If you can't technically execute those in a way that tells the story, you can't do this play in the way that Matthew Lopez intended it. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely like it's kind of baked into it this kind of challenge to uh to to produce produce you know these these shows really well and it's kind of exciting in that way. It's got this like sort of uh, visceralness, excitingness, also just the way that we're kind of constantly you know shifting. Like there's some big holidays that are like have themed performances around them, so the, yes, the kind of spectacle exactly. of changing into into different holidays is, uh, outfits and things like that. All of that like is such a fun way to show passage of time and also a fun, I imagine a fun, probably sometimes challenging, but I think ultimately fun, challenge both both for cast and crew to try to uh, jump to in those moments as we move through time pretty quickly through these, through this technicality. And the, the nature of drag being at the center of this script it has so many so many layers and complications. I want to acknowledge one and then talk about another more in depth. The one that I want to acknowledge is that it, this play has some controversy around it and has many different views of the play. Of course, there's a whole contingent of folks that are like, "Ah, oh, drag is terrible," rah, 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 rah. and they're sure, going to be sure. they're going to think of it as controversial no matter what. Set those folks aside. If you're one of those folks. Let's have a conversation about that sometime. Sure. I don't think that your perception on that is really in line with even some things that you think about the world is my guess if we talked about it. But set that aside for a while. Uh, the, the, the controversy that swirls around this play and other times is that this is a play about a straight man doing drag. And characters like Rexy and Tracy Mills who are – who. For them, drag is an extension of their identity and a place to be more fully themselves. That is more akin to what drag represents for the community. And so this might be one of those plays, and some people accuse it of being one of those plays, where you take a straight white guy and do something sort of progressive and social justice-y with that character. But really, at the center of it, it's still just a straight white guy doing this. And so that's a, I, I want to acknowledge that that lens exists. And then shift to what I think is a different conversation about the drag in the play. Drag has been a part of theater for almost as long as it's been around. People have dressed up as a gender identity that is not their biological sex for as in, in theater for a very, very, very long time. And, there, and so that's one thing. The second thing is that performances within a performance have been part of theater for a very, 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 very long time. Go pick yeah. a Shakespeare play, especially one of the comedies, but really at random. Just pull one off the shelf. <laughs> you are likely to find in that play an instance in which a character dresses up in a gender identity that does not match their biological sex. And you are likely to find an example of people, of characters within the performance performing something. A concert, a play, yada, yada, yada. So those two things have been part of theater for so, so long. What is a delightful part, I think, of The Legend of Georgia McBride being such a hit nationally is that, that, is that this play celebrates those two parts of theater in a piece of theater. It brings drag performance, which is those two things put together. Right? Mm, yeah. Uh, costuming and performing is a gender identity which does not match your biological sex and performance within performance and it sell I mean it puts it literally at the center of the storytelling these things that have been part of theater for so 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 long 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It centralizes it for sure, and then like build, yeah, it builds the whole play around it. The sort of backstage, onstage element of it plays into that as well. This sort of like very, very much so. These are these are performing characters, <laughs> people who are longtime performers who who love the art of performing and combine those worlds really, really fluidly for this for for this play, both in what they love to do and both and also in what they're kind of adapting and trying to overcome to do as well. This play is full of those adapting to some sort of strenuousness. <laughs> you know, at, at the beginning of the play, all the characters are down on their luck um, and all of them have a desire to uh, to, to make it out um, of, of that sort of uh, state and, and, and the, the way that they kind of rally around and, and adapt to that change um, uh, and, and then also try to support each other in the midst of that change as well as much as they can, even as they're throwing each other under the bus somewhat frequently is is uh is again yeah it's just it's just this kind of sort of um a community tale tale that has existed in theater for so long and it's cool to see this other iteration of it and i yeah and i just love that the the actual performance is in the middle of this again i mean there's a version of this plot let me say because it's not the same play or really the same story if you do it this way but there's a version of this plot where the drag performances happen largely off stage right they 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 are in the play takes yeah. place mostly in the dressing room they talk they get in and out of costume they reflect on how the performance went and you could get mostly the same plot points out of that i, th I think largely right and to be really honest with you it'd be easier to produce by a large yeah, margin, sure. it would make the play yeah. <laughs> easier to produce. But that is not, I mean, but Matthew Lopez in crafting this story says, no, 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 no. The performance of the thing. Actually, I mean, at some point, if you're getting up in drag, in even within a play and performing for the audience, you're doing a drag performance. I mean, very yeah. much so, Matthew Lopez sort of blends the the reality and the construct of the play until they're they they're almost the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely. It kind of like uh that sort of is the meta the meta vision and also the the the, the individual vision of the of the play itself kind of colliding in those moments. Um I think I also in that conversation, I wonder if we can talk about a couple of the things that we've we've talked about ways that it resonates with with uh, uh, not not tropes, but like consistent things with theater throughout the ages. There's a couple things in here that that I, I think also sort of um, uh, in, invert your expectation in really delightful ways. Um, uh, I'm thinking specifically of the way, uh, you know, you kind of expect this uh, relationship of Casey and Joe's to blow up um, and, and make him make the choice to choose between these two things. Because the other thing, yeah, I, I, I appreciate, I, I'm, I'm grateful you brought up the critique uh, the, or the possible critique of a straight white man jumping into drag. And then that's, that's, that's kind of a, a part of this play. You also, I think, get the, the uh, real sense that Casey loves this. And eventually by the end of it, he admits that to himself um, and he admits it to Joe. Um, that, that that this is an expression of himself in some way that maybe he's still learning actively. Um, and you, But there's this moment where you kind of expect that choice to emerge of like, you must do drag or you must uh, have this relationship with Joe. And I, and I love this kind of subversion of what if both? 
Um, what, and, and it's, it's this kind of delightful, like, yeah, there's this dyad choice, but what if there was, what if the choice is false? <laughs> what if there's another route that they could navigate? And I love the way that that kind of inverts the expectation of, of what they, they were about to, or, or, or what I was at least in reading it expecting to come about. There's so many great things that Matthew Lopez does to set up that journey along the way. Um, even something as simple as uh, they're, they're, when they're negotiating in the two scenes about money, about how Casey's life choices and sort of general irresponsibility are not lending themselves well to being financially set up. There is never a moment where Joe asks him to stop being an Elvis impersonator for the yeah. amount of mm-hmm. time in which he holds that job, right? This is not that trope, I think, which you suggest could very well be the this play where ah you're doing you're you're doing this thing that doesn't make any money. Get a real job, right? Get a real job is the kind of trope of this argument. But that's never the case. In fact, Joe is quite tender with him about his love of the king, as she calls. I think there's even there's a great line like I always knew I was going to have to share you with the king. You weren't doing this to make money. You were doing it because it was your passion. And that's okay. And because Matthew Lopez has set up Joe as that kind of person, her decision to be on board and to be with Casey in choosing to continue this performance as his career, as his life now, uh, it it makes it make sense. Um, Those things really tie together for me in the song that Casey has written and performs. When he performs it for her intimately in their apartment, um, it's just after Joe has been sort of vulnerable about how she constantly feels like she's somebody that has to say no and that life has sort of turned her away from the spirit she wants to have in the world and turned her she describes herself as being turned into a brick wall um she says i feel like i've gotten so hard lately i just want to be a girl again you know no not a girl a woman i don't feel like a woman i feel like a wall a brick wall casey i'm scared to death and he sings for her this song. The, the song has lines like, You know me, what you see is what you get. I found you and my life became brand new. Because of you, I know just who I am. Of course, you can see the thematic resonance that's going to take place when it's about taking on this other persona. The, the line that, that strikes me so much about that song and then becomes so relevant for the end is that after the song, she says, You make things less scary. Then, later, he performs this same song for the whole venue. It's no longer an intimate thing. It's a big performance opportunity, and he's as she, rather, as Georgia McBride, is singing and really performing. Again, I, I wanted to note that it's not a lip sync, which I think is one of the major um, steps in this character progression, and again, why the lip-synced drag performance is so crucial to the story. So, so Georgia McBride sings this, and that song, even though it's not something that we see happen to Joe on stage, is part of her turnaround to be alongside Casey. And I think you could almost take that line from earlier in the play and just drop it into this the scene at the end where she comes and accepts the performance, the performer that he wants to be. Uh, you make things less scary. Yeah, yeah, I like I like that resonance a lot, especially because because I agree she's not she's 
J- Joe doesn't Joe doesn't have a resistance to Elvis. Joe doesn't even I don't even really I mean certainly the way that the story ends up she doesn't have a resistance to him doing drag all that much. The thing that's scary is that he lies. Um and that's kind of the big uh, accusation that she, that she has against him in in the big fight that they have when they're back at home is you lied you lied for six months how do I know that anything it's scary now because I don't know whether you're telling the truth or not um and so so kind of uh that 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 beat of 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 uh it's scary that you lied but also then on Casey's side it's scary in this instance to tell the truth because I don't know what you're gonna think um is this 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 beautiful push and pull between them that eventually resolves yeah in that song and in and and in the route through that fear to to uh giving another chance um uh, which which is just such a a lovely a lovely journey to go on especially with um Tracy Mills's uh advice to Casey to be a person who um, fixes messes rather than makes messes, to start adapting his life a little bit, to to be a person who stops like get who stops being so good at fixing the messes he makes and just stop making messes so much. <laughs> <laughs> like get ahead of the ball a little bit, make some choices, tell the truth, um, and and uh, lean into what you know is the truth. And I think he goes on that slow journey of of moving towards that, just in the limited time that that Casey is around Tracy Mills. Which, by the way, like what a lovely metaphor for maturing just in the world. Yeah. To go, I mean, because like <laughs> there are great but fairly immature people in the world who are really good at cleaning up after themselves, right? In like a life sense. Yeah. But that's, but the, the you know, the the premise of the advice that Tracy Mills gives, Miss Tracy Mills gives to, to, uh, to Casey is like part of maturing is going from being a person really good at cleaning up after yourself to a person who's a little bit better at not, breaking things in the first place right that's just it's a lovely way to think about it this this metaphor of spilling or breaking things um i i i yeah i i love the 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 casey joe there's so many great little relationship things so many he does this awesome thing with a helmet when he's rubbing her feet that seems like very specific and funny about how he can no longer smell them because he's wearing a mimed helmet there's just some lovely specific relationship details in there uh one of the scenes in the play that does baffle me a little bit is when (laughs) casey chases joe out of the bar because she showed up and found him in drag and she's all you lied to me i'm out of here he chases her they end up back at the apartment she's throwing his stuff at him get out you're a liar you know this is a classic relationship fight scene and and actually maybe i'm even answering my own question because you earlier were so great at pointing out how the play breaks tropes but they're having this sort of tropish relationship fight right like get out of here you lied to me here's your stuff and in walks Casey's friend and landlord Jason who's kind of a doofus (laughs) character and just like is there for the whole fight and has such witty things to say as well the show must go on Joe Uh, later I went out with a gender nonconformist once her name was Fiona he's just like what is the point of having this guy in the middle of this fight? 
<laughs> he is just a wild character to, to kind of wander through. Both scenes that he kind of has weight in um, are scenes that are just like, okay, Jason, <laughs> cool. Um, the, the, the greedy witchy kind of like, I don't know. He's he just what in, in the, the other scene he's in, he comes in and he's basically trying to get uh, Casey to pay the rent. But he's also like there to check up on his buddy and drink a beer. And he just like keeps floating in these little lines of like, hey, you got to pay your rent. So congratulations on being pregnant. Um, so he's just like a, a, a very confusing character often. Uh, I think I think intentionally to Casey and Joe, this sort of like, odd representation uh, notably he's not in the denouement world um and in fact they're they're well, leaving Re rexy is and so that's i, I want to talk sure, about the, the actor is there too but yeah it, yeah it, i mean gosh if, I, if i'm trying to figure out like structurally why include this character in the fight like what i mean you know it's it, this is just written from the ground up so what why what is the point of this, right? Why is he in this fight scene? There are a couple things I can I can guess I can kind of think of. One of them might be that because he's there, Casey has to admit to more than just Joe that he's doing drag. So there's no way for it to be a secret between them anymore. So he functions as a representative of like the broader world. And so in this, what could be a private, intimate fight where they decide as a couple not to tell anybody, uh, no, in fact, Jason, representing everybody else in the world, finds out, so that secret's now out, and there's no going back. I think that may be a little bit of a part of it. I think it may be that by sticking Jason in this scene, Matthew Lopez prevents the scene from getting any more, he, like, he keeps it short. Right, because Jason's there, the couple can't have any chance at like reunion or having a really intimate, vulnerable conversation, any of the things that they really need to do in order to salvage their relationship. So really, Matthew Lopez is able to delay that part of the story till later in the play after the song when it makes more sense. Maybe that's part of it. It may be some of what you said of like that, you know, this this particular couple fight is kind of a trope, right? Like you've lied to me. Here's your stuff. Get out. I don't trust you anymore. Um, that's a little bit of a trope. So maybe adding this other character, it breaks the trope a little bit. Maybe it's Brechtian and it's designed to prevent us from <laughs> in, emotionally engaging too seriously with the fight or the couple. Uh, I think all that's possible. And then on to all of that, you layer what the thing that I'm maybe even more interested in about Jason, which is that he's the only doubled character in the show, and he's doubled with another of the drag queens, the the Rexy, who, who is about to give Casey in the next scene, or actually I guess it's two scenes later, uh, this uh, really touching uh, diatribe about the importance of drag to the drag community. So uh, all those are options. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is uh, peculiarly um, uh, not in the odd way, but like in the specific way, specifically and peculiarly positioned next to Rexy's return uh, uh, onto onto the, the kind of scope of the stage and also to deliver a pretty impactful 
monologue about the importance of drag um, to Rexy and to the drag community as well. Um, so, so there is there is just a little. I do wonder around the sort of like connection lines that are being drawn between those two moments to have to have uh, Jason have this what is a. Uh, uh, um, in the context of the argument taking place, a kind of an odd interjection into it, but also a sharing of his story, um, a little bit of his kind of surprise um, at a gender non-conforming person in his life. Um, there is there's that kind of interesting connection around these two sort of revelative uh, monologues, because he has it's a it's like a paragraph that he in the middle of of this argument tells a little bit of his story. Um, but these two monologues are. Um, situationally near within the script. So so I do wonder around the not really the juxtaposition but the the parallelism of those two monologues and if we're supposed to draw some connection to it given the casting of the same actor in those roles. Yeah. I I the the, the doubling there is an interesting one to me because structurally Jason and Rexy alternate. There's never and if I'm wrong about this, I guess all this falls apart. But as I'm glancing through the script, I think this is right. The neither the character Rexy nor the character Jason ever appears twice in a row. It's always back and forth, right? Rexy makes their first appearance with Miss Tracy Mills into the dressing room. They learn the Elvis impersonator is fired. The very next scene is the scene where Jason comes in and tells him he's got to pay the rent or they're going to kick him out. And then the very next scene is the scene where Rexy collapses drunk and, and you know has to leave the show. Um, and then I guess that, I guess here's what place where Rexy would appear twice in a row. Uh, Rexy comes back and says, you know, I want my job back later. And then we get Jason and then we get Rexy again. So it, it, it's not something that can be left out of the play. Like it goes beyond the character list saying that Jason and Rexy are played by the same person. When Jason first comes in, uh, the stage direction is uh, Jason enters. He is played by the same actor playing Rexy. To me, and I, this is just my director brain reading a script like this, and sometimes you can overthink things, but to me, to include that stage direction in that place where Jason comes in tells me that Matthew Lopez is hoping the audience makes that connection. Because otherwise, it's enough to put in the character list that those two are doubled. I get it, right? But to highlight it in the context of the script, to me, says that this is supposed to be something that is noticed and that is part of this somehow. Um, and I I don't know how. I, that, that one goes over my head a little bit. We do see Miss Tracy Mills out of drag as Bobby, as the person, I guess, within the drag, um, so it's not like it's supposed to be a shock that, like, there's a, a, a biological male under there. <laughs> like, that's part of the right, play right. as well. But is it maybe the contrast? Like, you never see Rexy out of Rexy's drag. You only see Jason, who's supposed to be a different character. I'm not sure. It seems so intentional that I feel like I'm missing a commentary or something. Mm -hmm. Or just yeah, just an, it feels to me too as just another sort of subversion of 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 an expectation. Um, and so 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 yeah, it's that I think that's all kind of in there as well. I think the, and we're coming down to towards the end of our time here. The last the last one we I just want to be sure we I, I want to be sure that uh, we note and we kind of already have in passing is the subversion of Rexy coming around. 
uh, a character who initially we uh, see kind of like crash land into the scene, be pretty abrasive, be pretty mean to Casey, um, uh, but also ultimately <laughs> uh, 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 leave the show in the, in the lurch, can't perform her number for for the for the show that night, and then kind of unceremoniously is fired slash uh, goes out on a, in a blaze of glory, saying you will never see me again, etc. I need 20 bucks for a cab. Sorry, can you give me 20 bucks for a cab? <laughs> so this this uh, uh, big kind of uh, big energy sort of character, a uh, very abrasive to to those around her, um, is is the one who comes back and kind of like sets uh, sets the stakes to for for Casey uh, with this this really impactful monologue about why drag matters so much to her. So again, I, I, I just want to laud, laud it one more time how much this, this play takes expectations <laughs> and just twists them just a little bit, subverts them, um, uh, honors, honors uh, expectations, but also presents just one more prism, one more facet through which to view them in. I completely agree. And I think that's probably the time that we have for this conversation today. There's always, always, always so much always more, more to talk about. We probably under-talked about Miss Tracy Mills for the importance and and wonderful specificity of that character. I love the way that that character calls out Casey for things that are obviously false. That's one of those things yeah. where I think that's a, I think that is Matthew Lopez under- unweaving a trope a little bit too i think in this kind of story the like person is hiding a secret life from their family story it is kind of a trope to have a moment where the character says like i don't know why i lied i just did it and in the middle of casey doing that tracy mills is like stop it you coward you know why you lie what do you mean you don't know why you lied why do you think you lied buddy and I just love I, I I always love when characters within a play can call out tropes within dialogue writing. I mean, there's just so much dialogue writing that is based in things like that. Why'd you lie to your wife? I don't know. And it just kind of floats right. by and the audience is like, of course, he doesn't know. He's trying to figure it out. And and Tracy Miller's like, stop. You know. <laughs> I just love it. And and that happened several times throughout the play. Lovely, lovely, uh, wonderful character throughout. There's there's a lot more, too. Boy, uh, The Legend of Georgia McBride is a big show. It's a it's super popular right now, and it's a blast to get to talk about. Even as it's kind of a it's a hot button show, I think we're gonna have we may get some responses out there that are gonna have some thoughts about this discussion. For sure, for sure. And we welcome those responses. We'd love to keep talking about this play longer on this show, but would love to keep talking about it with all of you as well. I I want to say this too, though. Uh, This show, and this is probably the case on other podcast episodes too, but I just want to say this. We ask people to comment on our social media and to send us emails. I don't want to see a bunch of hate in these. Like, If if you have something (laughs) negative to say about drag... Just don't. Like, I don't, that's not what we're, that's not the conversation that we're interested in having. So please don't comment your thoughts about why drag shouldn't be in the public arena or why people shouldn't be allowed to dress the way they want. I'm not interested. We're just going to delete them. So don't don't bother with that. 
If you want to have other conversations about how drag is presented in this script, about the legitimacy of that, or about the way that 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 performance works in our society, I mean that that's all fun and fine, and we're we're fa- fascinated with conversations about the play. But we're just gonna delete your comments, so don't waste your time if you're <laughs> if you're gonna be posting a bunch yeah. of hate on our social media channels. Won't be there for long. So, so yeah, but uh, we would, uh, with that said, we would love to ca- kind of continue to extend the conversation out there and 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 welcome conversation on our social medias. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have the Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep chatting about the legend of Georgia, Georgia McBride with you. Absolutely. If you've liked this conversation or any of our other conversations, please recommend us to your family, your friends, anybody you know that likes conversations about scripts, about stories, about writing, about all of these things that make up the art of theater. Send them our way. They're going to like the show. I think they can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, all the places that you see podcasts. That's where we are. You can also like the Facebook page and a link to the new episode will appear every Monday, including next Monday, when we're back with another great script. And we are looking forward to themed months in just a few short weeks. Yes, indeed. And so until next time when we're talking about another script, I'm Jackson. I'm Jacob. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>